0: The European Patent Office podcasts bring you an insight into, into the technology, technology and innovation shaping the world. Welcome to Talk Innovation, the EPO's podcast. Today's episode is the latest in a series in which we're talking to winners of the European Inventor Award 2021. My name's James Norton, and today I'm joined by Carl Leo, winner in the Lifetime Achievement category this year. Hello, Carl, and welcome to Talk Innovation. Hello. Pleasure to be here. The full details of the winners of the European Inventor Award 2021 are on the EPO website, that's EPO.org. And today's guest, physicist Carl Leo, has transformed the electronics industry during his long career. His pioneering work with semiconductors led to the development of highly efficient and cost-effective Organic Light Emitting Diodes, or OLEDs, which are essential for the displays on smartphones and many other electronic devices. Carl, first of all, uh, congratulations on winning this award. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you found out first that you were a finalist and then when you were announced as the winner?
1: When uh, the message reached me, I was completely surprised, but uh, it was a great honor and I was really excited about it.
0: And when you were announced as a finalist, was there anything that you had to do um, in terms of preparing for the award? Well, the whole technical procedure of recording was very well prepared
1: and uh, there were several test runs and uh, scripts and whatever, Uh, but there was a pleasure to participate in.
0: And uh, some of those listening will have seen the video uh, about your invention and uh, the reasons for your award. Um, Was it a good experience? Was it interesting to make that video and uh, to be able to explain the, the importance of the invention?
1: Yeah, we had a lot of uh, fun with the team. Uh, they spent uh, two full days here in, in, in Dresden and uh, if they wanted to show really what we do and uh, they made us think how we can demonstrate it. and we spent quite some time in the lab and many of my co-workers helped and
0: we try to make little experiments which, which uh, visualize what we do. And then, of course, you were announced as the winner of the um, award in the Lifetime Achievement category. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about how you reacted when you won and were you able to celebrate?
1: Sure, I was. I mean, due to the current various restrictions, things are somewhat limited. But yes, I could. But mainly, it was a big surprise for me. Very simply, because my my two competitors were very, very highly qualified researchers, and also they both work in a wider sense in in the biology. Medical area, and I thought because of the Covid pandemic, this topic might be preferred, so it came to me as a as a surprise
0: well it was I'm sure it was very well deserved. and did you um, have a chance to talk to any of your team members and and celebrate with them after winning the award?
1: oh sure they they were very excited, and uh, I must say the the feedback from from my team members, from colleagues from media was was uh, outstanding. And it was much more than any uh, other award I have won. And and uh, I think the very, very professional press work here uh, paid
0: out and uh, it was a, a really a pleasure to talk to many people about that. So have uh, things changed much for you since the an- uh, announcement about the award? Has your day-to-day work changed at all?
1: No, I'm doing all
0: the same work as ever doing <laughs>
1: Uh, new things in research but uh, clearly uh, especially for my team and for the whole uh, institute uh, this is really increasing reputation and people are proud to be part of this uh, endeavor you know research today is is a team is teamwork and uh, my name only stands for
0: a big team so as we mentioned, this is a Lifetime Achievement Award. So perhaps uh, can we go back to the beginning of your career um, and maybe you can tell us why did you become a physicist and, and what was it like working in physics right at the start of your career?
1: Well, uh, as a child, I was uh, always interested in, in uh, technical issues and, and uh, I, I did a lot of radio control planes and other things. And uh, actually to, to study physics was advice of my father, who was not a physicist, but a lawyer. But he told me, why don't you do physics? It's the basics. And if you know the basics, you can always specialize. I think that was a very smart advice. So uh, I ended up uh, studying physics.
0: And were there any, um, apart from your father, were there any other teachers or any uh, um, particular uh, inventors or anyone that inspired you early on in your career? Well, while I was studying, uh, it was really inspiring uh, to, to meet a
1: number of people First of all uh, the university teachers there were some some really impressive lectures and the most important ones were actually in mathematics you know I kind of uh, like the beauty of mathematical equations I know that not everybody likes mathematical equations but I do and uh, later on uh, I met some very impressive people uh, my advisors for my diploma thesis um, Adolf Gützberger, who has really done very important work in photovoltaics, and that's a topic which I continued throughout all of my career. Then my PhD advisor, Hans Kreisel, who was a famous physicist who had worked with uh, uh, William Shockley, the inventor of the transistor. So there were many, many
0: people who really were a role model for me. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, I guess like a lot of scientists, you know, it's uh, sort of one step leads to another and uh, and you build on people's uh, achievements and, and, and inventions and discoveries. Exactly. When,
1: you know, when I was with Hans Quaiser, he always uh, told us about his, his pioneering work while he was with Shockley and later on at Bell Laboratories. So for me, it, it was clear I had to go to Bell Laboratories and that's where I ended up as postdoc. So yeah, it's good to have mentors. That helps a lot. And how did you decide uh, which areas of
0: research to focus on?
1: Well, that's actually a good question because I studied physics at the University of Freiburg where uh, at that time, at least, there wasn't much work on applied physics. But uh, I was always a person who who is interested in applications. So I ended up uh, for my master's thesis at the Fraunhofer Institute with Götzberger. And uh, they worked on, on solar energy and that was extremely motivating, you know, when you really understand what your work is good for. you know seeing a solar cell and is an amazing thing for me. you put something in light and suddenly there's electrical energy coming out of it and uh, obviously the, the applications uh, are, are obvious and that was very motivating. So I, I was always motivated by applications although uh, I still try to in, understand the basics of applications.
0: And, and how well developed was the research in that area at the time? Was it, was it still very young or, or was, it, uh, was there quite a lot of work going on? Well, at
1: that time, actually, silicon solar cells were still a very young technology. Uh, but uh, the field I'm working in today, uh, organic photovoltaics, uh, has actually not yet started. So uh, that uh, is a field which is much less mature than the work I did in my
0: early career. And and looking at your career as a whole and uh, obviously how it's developed, what have been the biggest changes that you've seen in in your time working in in this area in physics in general?
1: Well, you know, there's continuous progress in research. And one of my standard quotes to to my students is that every answered scientific question uh, raises uh, 10 new ones. So there's never a lack of topics. Uh, Clearly, Uh, in in uh, uh, solid state physics uh, semiconductor physics where i work there is now a big majority in in silicon technology but now we are working on new electronics uh, flexible biocompatible electronics i'm absolutely sure there will be further progress and the the societal motivations uh, obviously will also never disappear you know Take as an example climate change. It's obvious that we have to work on that to solve the issue, and technology will play an important role. So, in overall, things haven't changed much. Uh, we are much more international than we were in the beginning. Communication has entirely changed. You know, uh, I, mean, you, I couldn't imagine Zoom meetings when when I wrote my diploma thesis on a typewriter.
0: But uh, overall, uh, science uh, is is going as it always did and that international aspect you mentioned i mean how is that uh, how does that appear is it uh, more more researchers from from a wider range of countries more, more students coming in from different backgrounds yes that's a, a key component for instance we have a degree
1: on organic molecular uh, electronics here at Dresden, and uh, 70 80% of the students are from foreign countries and uh, it's it's really motivating to see how people uh, are interested in the topic and travel all over the world to to study it uh, and also obviously uh, traveling to other countries is easy except for the last two years or so is easier than ever before and this exchange is is very fruitful and it's really a very nice part of
0: my work yeah so has that do you think that's accelerated the pace of research because people can communicate that much better and, and more quickly
1: Definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, in, in when I was a, a beginner, uh, you submitted a, a paper to a journal and then you looked every, uh, every day in your mailbox and it took uh, weeks or months until you got
0: a letter. Nowadays, uh, you get an email and things go much quicker. And apart from your own research, have there been any um, inventions or, or products that have been really influential uh, during your career that you think you know really made a big difference to the, the state of research?
1: Well, actually, uh, I, I wouldn't. Couldn't name a, a single, a single product or a single new, new measurement tool. Obviously, um, the, there's a certain or a continuous development in scientific instruments, but um, the the basic challenges of research uh, have remained. You know, uh, it's, it's always uh, the point that you have an open question. Uh, sometimes you don't even fully understand what the open question actually means. And then uh, you have to go to the lab and find out and uh, discuss uh, the results. And that is the, the fascinating part, you know, when it's like a, like walking in a, in a foggy landscape and then suddenly you see something coming out of the fog and then suddenly you get above the fog and you see
0: with all clarity where you are and what's around. It must be very rewarding when you have that experience of seeing something, as you say, emerging from the fog in that way. Yes, and especially
1: in my field, uh, let's take one example, the organic light-emitting diodes. You know, there you can see what you do, you know, when you when you first time see an organic light-emitting diode lighting up. Uh, that is especially, uh, my my field is called optoelectronics, and seeing something with your own eyes, you know, for us human beings, is still a
0: key experience. So as you've mentioned, and as I said at the beginning, the award recognizes in particular your research in OLEDs. Um, Can you explain a little bit about how that work uh, came about and why it's been so important? Well, it came about uh, not by
1: specifically trying to improve
0: OLEDs, but
1: uh, trying to understand something basic. And there was a question. Uh, whether you can control the conductivity of organic materials by by doping. In silicon, uh, doping is is a standard technique. Uh, It simply means that you add a little bit of an impurity to a material and you can increase the conductivity by orders of magnitude. And we were raising the question, can you do that in organics? And initially, there were lots of people in the field who, who were very skeptical and said that this won't work and won't help. But um, uh, we, we tried it uh, to, to get it working. And, and uh, the student who did uh, this work, uh, the PhD student, Martin Pfeiffer, he, he showed uh, very nicely that it works. And then uh, the, the other student who worked on that topic, Jan Blochitz, he tried it in devices and immediately uh, he could uh, reduce the, the voltage of an OLED by a factor of five. You know? when, you, when you see that one OLED needs 25 volts to emit light, the other one five
0: that's a breakthrough and shows it it works. It's a very good summary of the research. I mean, how long a period did that research take and and how many people were involved in it?
1: It took a long time. Uh, The the first experiments in that direction uh, were done in the early 90s. And um, we are still actually today working on this topic because uh, although it has been in devices now for a couple of years, uh, there are still some, some basics of physics which we don't fully understand. Uh, but in total, from from first research to product, it took at least fifteen years, and there were um, uh,
0: tens of people involved. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about the practical application of OLEDs? I mean, it's something it's a term I think many of us are now familiar with. You know, we see TVs and other devices advertised. But what what, what do you see as being the most important applications for OLEDs? So far,
1: it's clearly in mobile phones and in small displays uh, where, where OLED uh, dominate the market. Um, but uh, it clearly, uh, I think from, from simply the image quality, um, it, uh, there are very good chances that OLED will also uh, dominate the TV, uh, the small, mainly uh, manufacturing. Issues which uh, make it a little more difficult for very large displays. But the, the basic principle of an OLED is, is simply superior to the main competitor, the, the liquid crystal display, because that is nothing more than a valve with a very intensive light source behind it. But the OLED is, is emitting itself, and therefore the, the image quality um, is, is very convincing. The, uh, the other point we thought about for OLEDs has so far not really taken up. Uh, this is uh, uh, taken off. This is uh, OLED lighting. Um, in, in lighting, things are somewhat different. The main driver of lighting is low cost. In display, it's somewhat different. So, um, this remains to be seen whether OLED will have a larger part in lighting. But uh, I think in displays, OLED still uh, has a lot <clears throat> to grow. Although uh, today, uh, OLED displays are a 30 to $40 billion market already.
0: Wow. (laughs) So, yeah, so it's a big market, but still got potential to grow further. Definitely. And are there any particular challenges involved in OLED um, manufacture or or development that have to be overcome?
1: Uh, Definitely many. It was a completely new technology and uh, it took many years to to transfer it into mass manufacturing. Um, The biggest challenge actually has been, especially for televisions, um, to structure the individual pixels, uh, you need to structure the OLED um, uh, to a tens of micron size. And uh, doing that on very large area with very high yield is challenging. And that's the main reason why OLED first uh, had big success in small displays and is now only step-by-step entering uh, television. But uh, that's, uh, I think, an engineering issue and and, uh, will be solved step by step. And then we'll see uh, it also in in televisions in large
0: numbers. And I think another area you've mentioned where there might be applications is in uh, solar technology, solar cells. Um, Can you just say a bit more about that? Well, you know, a solar cell is actually
1: just the inversion of an OLED. An OLED you put in electricity, get out light. In a solar cell, you put in light, get out electricity. So uh, immediately when we worked on OLEDs, we also thought about uh, solar cells. And um, this has been also quite successful. And uh, actually, um, uh, right a few meters above me, where I'm sitting now in my office, uh, are some pilot modules from our spin-off company. And part of the electricity I'm using for this podcast is coming from organic solar cells. And uh, they, they are quite promising insofar as they are uh, lightweight, flexible, a plastic foil, so they open up new applications where the the heavy rigid silicon modules don't work, and also they have a very very um, low energy payback time. What does it mean uh, when you manufacture a solar cell? You obviously need some energy, and uh, by the energy it's generating, this has to be paid back first, and uh, uh, this can be years with conventional. Uh, solar technology, but an organic uh, solar cell pays back its manufacturer energy within weeks.
0: Very interesting, and it's good to hear that the uh, Talk Innovation podcast is uh, playing a very small part in a scientific experiment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, you mentioned uh, uh startups and spin-off companies, and I know you've launched a few uh, over the course of your career. Uh, what advice would you give to any other scientists who are looking at uh, commercializing their innovation and maybe launching a, a startup uh, company? Well, give it a try. Uh, if, if it works, it's it's really fun.
1: And uh, if a company fails, which can happen, uh, also one company fail, uh, it's not, not a big issue. Um, but uh, it, it, it's It would be simply said, you know if we if we develop very nice technology and we, we don't exploit it. And f- furthermore, and that's for me also one of the biggest motivation, uh, it's it's a wonderful way to to open careers for for my coworkers. You know so many of my students uh, are nowadays successfully working in spin-off companies, have made really solid careers. So that's a, a beautiful way uh, to to transfer their knowledge. In their head uh, to a company
0: and and, uh, allow them to make a solid professional career. And and what role do patents and IP protection play when you're um, developing these new companies? Obviously,
1: they are central. I mean, these typical uh, technologies, uh, spin off companies we talk about, they need uh, a large amount of money. And obviously, the investors want to protect themselves. And what they uh, check from the beginning is uh, that uh, the company has a reasonable IP protection. And therefore, it's it's crucial that we generate patents at the university, that we license or transfer them to the company, and that these patents are professionally done. Because otherwise, simply due to the long time it takes to, to bring it
0: to market, we need to protect the investments. And if there's one piece of advice you would give to someone looking at a, a, a spin off company, what would it be?
1: I think the the easiest answer is uh, look for a good team. It's important to have a good idea. It's important to have good financing. But in my experience, at the end, uh, what counts is is the team. Uh, You can assemble to to run the company. Even if sometimes a product fails or an idea doesn't work, uh, a good team will find another one. So getting the right people is, is crucial and actually is also for me the main limitation it's it's not so easy to find uh, people who are very good in technology and also good entrepreneurs that's a a qualification which is not as frequent and i'd love to have more people who are both
0: yes and so you need that team to have people with different skills and different experiences that complement each other and and they can work together
1: exactly they need to work well in a team but they, they need to have all the competences you need
0: Now, you're uh, also Chair and Professor of Optoelectronics at uh, TU Dresden, aren't you? Um, So you must work a lot with uh, young researchers, students, uh, postgraduate students. Uh, What is that like? And uh, what are the students like today? And what kind of things are they interested in?
1: Well, first of all, that's uh, maybe the nicest part of my profession, that I continuously meet young people, educate and see how they develop. You know, uh, I meet people when they are students, sometimes they are not even twenty years old, and uh, then I see over twenty years or so how they develop, and it's great fun to see how many of them have a very decent uh, career. So uh, that that is extremely nice, and and uh, discussing with with the young people science, uh, guiding them uh, is is very uh, nice way to 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 do uh, research, and uh, I think uh, over time uh, young people haven't changed. Uh, they communicate uh, today somewhat, somewhat differently, you know, with the modern communication channels. Things haven't changed. Young people are interested. They, they are motivated and it's fun to work with them.
0: Do, are there any particular areas of research that, that you think young people are really interested in at the moment? I mean, I guess climate emergency and sustainability are obviously very important for, for many people nowadays.
1: That's absolutely true, but uh, this has been all the time. Photovoltaics was always a, a topic which generated much interest uh, with students. Obviously, because it's such a nice uh, topic, because it's it's such important and uh, um, is, is now maybe even more important than than ever before. But uh, I think it's not really um, a matter of the specific topic. I think uh, this idea to, to try something which hasn't been done before, to understand things which nobody has ever understood before, this curiosity-driven research is, is still appealing uh, to students and will ever be.
0: So are you, uh, you're optimistic about the future of research?
1: absolutely i mean the, the one maybe small uh, caveat i would i would argue is that uh, what i've seen over my career is that uh, bureaucracy has increased a lot you know uh, when i started uh, things were easier and and nowadays uh, we do more paperwork we do the paperwork mostly electronically but uh, uh, this has somewhat changed and it's a little bit disappointing that we nowadays you know uh, to give you an example, uh, in the the applications we have to write for funding are getting longer and longer. Um, sometimes I'm now submitting applications which are 70, 100, 120 pages long. Um, you know, sometimes it would be a better idea if the if the funding agencies uh, would say, you know, write me one page, and uh, they would decide on one page.
0: Yes. Yes. Yes, I guess it's important to give researchers the time and the freedom to actually focus on the the research and and not um, be too distracted by other things.
1: Absolutely. You know, the the time for the research is the the creative time and the time for
0: bureaucracy is not. Thank you very much uh, to Carl Leo for joining us on today's edition of Talk Innovation, the EPO podcast.
1: Thanks, it was a pleasure talking to
0: you. And uh, thanks again to you
1: and everybody at EPO.
0: And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is part of a series of interviews with European Inventor Award winners uh, for 2021 this year. And the previous episodes can be found on the EPO website. And I'd also like to remind all our listeners that you can now nominate an inventor for the 2022 European Inventor Award, including uh, for the new Young Inventors Prize, which is aimed at innovators aged 30 and under. And there are some uh, special uh, rules for that uh, prize. So do have a look and find out more about those uh, on the website at epo.org nominate. And the nomination forms are all there. The deadline is the 1st of October. So uh, do get cracking, don't delay. Thank you very much to everyone for listening today. And we look forward to hosting another episode of Talk Innovation very soon. Thank you. Subscribe to the European Patent Office's podcast channel, Talk Innovation at EPO.org
1: or on your favourite podcast platform. Let's Talk Innovation.